All right, good morning. You can grab, yeah, everybody's down. Good, all right, you can grab a seat. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew today, so if you have a copy of the Scriptures, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. You can turn or tap your way there. Digital Bibles are fine. We want you to be able to see it in a way you can kind of check what we're doing here and check it again through the week. My name's Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church, and today we're going to finish up our series on the real Jesus. We're going to kind of try to bring to a conclusion what's happening in Matthew 8 and 9. You have the Sermon on the Mount, big deal. Matthew 5 through 7, and then you have in Matthew 8 and 9 this sort of series of stories that have a cycle to them. There's a repetition to them of Jesus showing himself to be authoritative and showing himself to be loving. Jesus showing himself to be God, he's making that very clear through both his actions and his words, And Jesus showing himself to have a love that is described in the Old Testament of God. I mean, there's a steadfast love and a sweetness and uh, an intensity. There's a, a closeness, a proximity described by God's love of us in the Old Testament. If you get into it, I don't know how often you read the prophets, but if you get into some of the Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah type prophecies, and of course Hosea and other places throughout the Minor Prophets, God compares himself to Israel as a husband to a wife. Certainly throughout the Bible, God talks about himself as a father, relating to us as a father to a child. And it's not a severe, intense. Obviously, there's this huge distinction. We talk about authority is holy and yet condescending, that that he's holy and yet loving. Authoritative and yet loving. And you say, don't say holy, but loving. I mean, that's part of what it is for him to be holy. Uh, There's just a lot to it. And and I think the repetition of, of exposure to these stories helps you to kind of really believe it. It helps some of this stuff to finally kind of crack through your hard heart a little bit and get down into you that that that's the kind of God that you could serve. And and in this series on the real Jesus. We've been really just focusing on what the scriptures tell us Jesus is. We haven't really done a lot of analysis on how other groups have tried to understand Jesus throughout history. We could do that. I don't know that that's not helpful, but it's just a big topic. I mean, people have understood Jesus, I'll say this wrongly, in ways that the Bible would not recognize for millennia. Uh, I'm put in mind. So yesterday we did that... um, marriage conference. And in the marriage conference, I didn't try to describe how your marriage could go wrong. I just tried to say how it should be right in the, in the hopes that we put our, our eyes on what it should be. Now, it's, there's, a, there's a reason to, to look at things that are wrong and try and diagnose them and get through them. But man, I think the best way to do that, the best way to make that understood is to, to see it how it should be. And I, it put me in mind of this Tolstoy quote. He said, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. I think that's probably just a, it's not just a snappy way to start a really long book. Have you ever tried to read a Tolstoy book? Good luck. Yeah, you're not going to do it. It's going to end up just being the thing that you use to hold doors open because it's a brick. Uh, And, you know, it's high art or whatever, but it's long. But you can get through the first sentence. And the first sentence on the Santa Karenina is pretty good. And it is, it's making that same point. There is a way in which things are good, and that, that goodness 
It, it's, it's good because it aligns with something. It, it captures something that's right. You can break things a lot of different ways, but there's a way that things should go. There's a way that we should come to Christ, and we can be broken in a lot of different ways. We don't come to Christ as, because we're good, but, but I'm saying understanding who He is, the message of the gospel about who He is, is a message. It's not really open for that much interpretation. So now the question, as we kind of finish this series, is, is to ask what Jesus asked of the people in these stories today. What are you going to do? What do you think about this guy? Do you trust him? Now, I'd like to leave these long, dramatic, rhetorical silences, but I'm concerned, too. It sounds like somebody's deadlifting right on the other side of the wall there. So if I keep moving, feel the drama, and we'll just go faster. All right, so Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 27, says, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David! When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to him, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. So they disobeyed. But the main, the main kind of point here is this healing. And if you've been reading through these stories in Matthew 8 and 9, there's a, there's a repetition to it. There's, there's lots of people coming to be healed by Jesus, whether it's a centurion or a leader, a ruler of the synagogue, or one of these poor people that are far from God in the society, like the, whether it's the leper or this woman that is bleeding and considered unclean, or even the dead. And yet, Jesus, as he's interacting with all these people, as he's healing all these people, as he's being kind to and receiving all of these people, as he's taking their illnesses on himself. That's what we described yesterday or uh, last week when we talked about the, the way that Matthew sees this through the lens of Isaiah and, of course, through the lens of the end of Matthew with him dying on a cross for us, that, that he doesn't just heal us, that he's, of course, he's God, he can do whatever he wants, but, but what he is doing is showing us that he's going he's gonna to have to take our sin upon himself. And we've seen that too, that it's not just healing that's taking place here. There's also a forgiving that's taking place. You don't always associate those things in the same way. We try to draw that picture and, and maybe help us understand that because this person sinned doesn't mean that they have this disease. We have sinned and we have disease, right? But the, the Bible is making the case that we should understand, like the, the things that are broken about this world came about because of our sin. And so they are married. And, and yet, as Jesus heals people, he'll say to them, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And he can't just make sins go away. Much ink is spilled throughout the New Testament helping us understand that sin doesn't just go away. It has to be paid for. You can pay for it. He can pay for it. But it has to be paid for. The question comes back to, well, how do you actually receive that gift? How do you actually get that payment? What, what, what I want to think about is that, that hurdle between understanding Jesus, maybe even liking Jesus, choosing to believe in Jesus, and becoming a follower of Jesus. 
When I say believe in Jesus, there are people in Scripture that seem to come to Jesus and say, you think of Nicodemus in John 3, they, they seem to say to him, hey, we know that you must be a, a true teacher, that you speak with the authority of God. Who can do these things if they're not God? And yet, they don't seem to have taken that final step in belief yet. And so I, I wonder what that, that hurdle is, that people seem to get closer and closer, but do they actually follow? And, and, and people that maybe have said, no, 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 I am a follower of God. Okay, well, let me ask you then, as you're reading this stuff, as you're looking at it, as you're seeing your life, are you actually following? Or is it possible that we kind of slip back over, not into unsalvation, not into some sort of like apostasy necessarily, but we start to live again without that lordship? I want to figure out how to get over it. And we've got all these examples. The examples today are these two blind men. And we're going to go into another story here in just a second. But these two blind men and the way that Jesus interacts with them is interesting because he doesn't just say, sure, be it done to you. He doesn't just like make them go do something. Hey, you're cleansed. Go show the priest so that you can be, you know, declared clean. He actually engages them in a conversation. And so I I want us to think through it and think through it kind of slowly and see how they get it. I I want to understand how to really get him, to know him. And then in the next part part of this, to see how some refuse him. Well, these guys, they're blind, and they know they're blind, and they know that this Jesus can help them. And so they're following him. It takes effort to do anything blind in the first century, but they're following Jesus blind and crying out, calling out to him, have mercy on us, son of David. So they're, they're following and they're crying out and they're crying out because their, their problem isn't some casual problem. It's not some private issue. They needed Jesus and they cry out like babies. Do you have babies? Are babies respecters of, like, other things you've got going on right now? They don't seem to care. No, we're, you know, we're, this, there's something happening right now. Well, okay, but a baby needs something. And so they just haul off and just wail as loud as they can because they need. And they're not really concerned about anything else other than their need. Now, these are blind men. I'm sure that they could be made to understand that there's times to scream out, son of David, and sometimes when maybe he's doing something else. But but they're modeling following after him in the way that we should. They're not coming proud. And you think about the part of Scripture where a rich young ruler comes and kneels before Christ and then displays his righteousness. Ah, these guys are just crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. They need him. They, they understand that their situation isn't fixable on their own. There's a band called Ghost Ship. I don't know. But they have a song that's about a similar story, and in it they say, the blind won't gain their sight by opening their eyes. That seems so obvious, but take a second and understand the, the, the way that that analogy works itself out. When we're talking about blindness, we're not just talking about the physical inability to see light and shapes. We're talking about the inability to see God as he is for yourself as you are. You don't just fix that by opening your eyes. You need 
him to act in you. Just like these blind men needed him to heal them. They cry out and they ask for mercy. I I think you don't want to hop over that one either. We talk about the connection between sin and, and the brokenness of the world, but these guys aren't blind because, you know, they keep robbing widows. You know, like there's not like a thing that they do that God then cursed them with blindness for. And yet, when they come to Jesus, they don't come with um, contempt. Lord, how dare you make me blind? Fix it. Here I am in this universe that you've made, and oh my gosh, everybody else can see, apparently, and I'm blind. Come on. That's not what he says. They come asking for mercy. I, I think it, it's helpful for us to insert here some of the things that do come up when we talk about um, rejecting Christ. If you're somebody who's evaluating Jesus, then you got the like, first-person seat on this. You're just looking at your own heart. If you're somebody who's already come to Christ, you can remember or you can think about how it is when you talk to people about Jesus. A lot of people have a reason that they don't follow. They've got a, an objection Here's why I don't believe. Now, I I hope that they are honest enough with themselves and with their own kind of situation to tell you a real objection. That's gold. Thank you. Please tell me a real objection. Because I've got 2,000 years of responses to real objections. I can give you answers. You're concerned about the Bible's integrity. Great. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Please don't get bored. I've got so much I can tell you about why the Bible is Believable, why we have what they had in the first century. Oh, no, 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 I'm I'm sorry. I I meant that I can't believe in the supernatural. Oh, great. Thank you so much for telling me. Let's talk about that. Let me try to help you understand why that has never been a problem for most people throughout history or around the world today. Let me help you with that real objection, which, when answered, will now be out of the way, and you will be that much closer to accepting Christ. Wonderful. But... But there's also something called a smokescreen. I think it's, it's, it's real that often we'll, we'll be relieved when we have a reason for not believing. Think about that. You can feel relief for having a reason to not believe. What does that tell you about your heart? I think sometimes we want objections because we don't want to receive him. Well, that's a bigger issue. By God's grace, I got to share with a guy yesterday. We got to spend some time together thinking about the gospel. And his objections to the gospel were were definable. Like he could say it and I could respond to it. And then you could watch him then try to come with another objection. It's like, bro, I didn't say this, but I'm thinking. "Isn't, Isn't the hope in a conversation to come to truth? I hope that that's what I am trying to figure out. Like, if, I, if I'm believing something that's wrong, please tell me. I'm investing a lot in this. I could be doing other things. If this isn't true, I want to know what's true. But if you're talking to somebody and they're just not objective, well, how do you get them to get to a place where they agree? I, I think there's, there's reasons that you can say, I, I don't believe. Awesome. Let's talk about those reasons. But be honest with yourself about whether those reasons are honest reasons. Or if maybe there's something deeper there. 
these guys do ask for mercy. They do fall at his feet. And they identify Jesus as the son of David. It's interesting that they do that. The book of Matthew, if we had time to go through the whole thing, we will, you know, if you commit to Hope Church and stay here forever, we'll get through it eventually. But, but Matthew begins with and has a theme of the connection between Jesus and this, this construct in the Old Testament of not just David, the historical character, but David, the one who has received this covenant from God about one who will sit on the throne as king of Israel forever. And you have these psalms that talk about what it is to be the king and the king who will stand sit on this throne forever. You have Isaiah that is prophesying in Isaiah 35. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and will save you. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The other story is about a mute guy. And they probably, the wording in Greek for mute is probably also connected with not being able to hear. So we've got both of those happening with this story that's about to come. The mute, the tongue of the mute will sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah 35 is only 10 verses long. Please read it this afternoon and just think, think, think about what it is that they are calling him son of David, that they're invoking these ideas, these promises that God is going to send one who will come and make all things well. That's what they're hoping for. That's what they're praying for. That's what they're leveraging. That's what they're trusting Jesus to actually be. I, I, I think it's important for you to realize that all of this gospel message stuff is dependent on you needing something from him. Do you need something? We talk about this a lot because in your pride, forgive me for telling you that you might be proud. If you're offended by the fact that you might be proud, gotcha, because that means you're definitely proud, right? In your pride, you're going to be motivated to blind yourself from your blind spots, your needs. Part of being proud is, is showing the world and showing yourself to yourself in the best light possible. Well, the gospel is for people who need something. Do you need something? Let me give you a practical way to try and excavate your, your heart a little bit and see, okay, is there stuff in here that's, that's actually in need of change. One of the things we talk about a lot is we say that uh, there's this great exercise called a stop exercise, S-T-O-P. We talk about it a ton in biblical counseling. That the idea is that God's given you painful emotions. He's given you a whole world of reactions to the things that you're doing, but you don't really always figure out those emotions. It's not just guys. It's, it's humanity, but you ask them, like, how are you feeling? People say, good, or bad. Okay. Well, we're not in second grade. Can you go further than good or bad? What is your emotional landscape? What are you feeling? Anxious. Oh, okay. We're getting a little further. But you just keep saying anxious. Is that it? Is that the totality of what it is to be you? Is that what you're experiencing? So stop. Stop. Take three breaths. Observe. Ask that question. How am I feeling? And then P, pray for biblical counseling, or proceed, you know, if it's not so biblical counseling. But the idea is just, what is, what is your experience? Ask yourself that. Review it with somebody who you love and loves you. Start to get an idea. Do you need something? The more that I understand myself, 
the more I see that I've got a lot of fear in my life. Just a confession. I, I think sometimes I take stuff from Scripture or stuff from our life, and in my pride, I'm just like, yep, I believe it. Here we go. And ignore the fact that, you know, I don't know that I really resolved that fear that I'm feeling. I notice that I chew on my cheeks a lot. I do that as a way to kind of deal with anxiety. And I've started to notice how often I do it. What's that tell me about myself? Well, I'm weak. I need. I'm not able to come to him and be impressive. I got to come to him in need. What is it that you need? I think these guys come and they call him son of David and they're seeking mercy from him and they call him Lord and Jesus responds. He, he questions them about their faith in him and his abilities. And I think that part is really interesting here. He doesn't do that in some of the other stories of healings, but in these stories, he, he asks them, he says, do you believe that I can do this? They say, yes, Lord. And then he says, according to your faith, may it be. I, I, I think we can miss it. In the, in the original language, it, it doesn't sound so like conditional. In the original language, it doesn't sound like he's saying, well, let's see how much you believe. If you believe a lot, then when I touch you, you're going to be able to see. And if you only believe a little bit, like one of the guys walked out of there and still needed corrective lenses, but the other guy could like see 2020 because he really believed. I think we have that idea. If you really believe, then God really acts in your life. But if you only a little bit believe, then he only maybe works in your life. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the same thing as what he said to that woman earlier in this chapter. He's saying the same thing that he says to that guy early in the chapter, Jairus, that comes because his daughter's dead. He says, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus just goes with him. He doesn't stop and ask questions. The woman, though, touching the hem of his robe, the bleeding woman that we talked about last week or two weeks ago, last week, touches the hem of his robe and receives that healing. And he just turns around and looks at her. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Instantly, the woman was made well. But for these guys, there's a, there's a back and forth a little bit. Jesus is asking them the question, do you know who I am? Do you believe in me? And of course, we understand that they don't, <laughs> really. Not much, not compared to what we do with the whole of Matthew to be able to read. But they do. Enough. Enough that he, he heals them. Enough that he walks with them enough that they're now his followers. They, they take that final step. They understand enough, and they take that final step. So we talk about this at Hope Church too. What we mean by faith is not blind faith. No pun intended. What we mean by faith is what anybody does anytime they actually choose to believe anything. You understand a series of facts, and then from those facts, you make an inference. You make a deduction. You make a a claim. We're trying to show you facts. If you've got real objections to those facts, thank you. Again, that's gold. Give it to me. Let's talk. Uh, Let me have the opportunity to be really patient and and try to be humble and, and talk about that slowly and carefully with you. But... 
we, we, we get these facts and we line them up and we say, okay, here's this Jesus. Here's what a reliable source is telling us that he did and said. Here's 2,000 years of the world totally different because of what he did. Here's the way that his teaching interacts with my life, affects my understanding of who I am and the world that I see around me. Brokenness, God, holiness, everything. And here's the heart-melting love that is expressed through the cross. Now, I, I take those facts... And then I take that final step. A way of thinking about it, an illustration that I like, is seeing a chair and thinking about how that chair probably can hold you. You examine it. You think about it. You're looking at it. You think about yourself. Is this a chair designed for a self that would, me, would I, can I sit in that and have it exist? Or does it turn into matchwood? You know, what, what will that chair do if I sit on it? You can speculate But faith is the actual sitting in the chair. As a big person, I do think about that. Some other big people in here can agree with me. There are chairs that are no problem. These are like steel and plastic. Go for it. And there are chairs that are not. Um, There was a little kid at the girls' school on Friday. I was wearing a jazz jacket, and because I'm tall, I guess. As I was walking in, this guy went, Hey, you look like Rudy Gobert. Now, I don't know if you know about Rudy Gobert. I'm not seven foot one or French uh, or black, but I, I took the compliment. I was like, yeah, thank you. Absolutely. But Rudy gets it. Not all chairs are alike. Rachel bought me a rocking chair on Amazon. It's so cool. I really like it. But it was on Amazon. So we bought it, we assembled it, and then we held our breath. And I sat down. There was creaking. But it wasn't like bad creaking. It was okay creaking. And that chair holds me, and I love it. Do you actually put yourself in him? These blind guys don't understand him. That's part of why Jesus is telling them this. this it's, we call it the messianic secret. There's this theme through the Gospels. You see it most in Mark where Jesus will tell people not to tell about the healing that he does. And it's because he's, he's gonna, they're not, they haven't seen the cross yet. They don't understand his ministry yet. Carson says it this way. This rather violent verb, the way that he says, don't tell anybody, reveals Jesus' intense desire to avoid a falsely based and ill-conceived acclaim that would not only impede but also endanger his true mission. We'll talk more about that in the next series. But I'm just saying they, they don't understand him. They don't get him, really. But also they do get him, really. They call him the son of David, and they cry out asking for mercy. And they get it. What they did do is sit in the chair. They're not carpenters. They're not theologians. They don't understand the fullness of what the atonement was going to happen on the cross, what what he was actually doing for them and their sin before holy God. They just understood what a baby understands. I need. Mom helps. I, I need. Son of David, have mercy. And he does. You can learn a lot, and I want you to. But there's a point at which you need to put your weight on him, have you? Not everyone does. You look at verse 32 as the next story comes. It says, as they're going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who is mute. And that's what we're saying, that word that was mute, but also probably meant mute deaf. 
was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, so it was a demon-oppressed man, he had an illness or a, a physical malady that was caused by spiritual forces, and the enemy, the, the demon, is cast out. And then the mute man can speak. Makes you think of Isaiah again. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Wow. Is your experience that everybody has this reaction? No. Verse 34. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. The facts were there. They saw this guy that was mute speak. They saw this guy that was blind see. They saw this daughter Maybe they didn't see her dead, but they watched all the mourners crying out and playing their flutes around Jairus' house. And then word spread. She was dead, and he just woke her up. They've got the facts. But what do they do with them? Well, they have faith in a different direction. It takes faith to accept him, but it also takes faith to reject him. It takes faith to say, no, 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 the only way to explain these facts is that he actually serves the prince of demons. Whoa. And these two choices, that he is God or he's the prince of demons, I, I know what I choose. But they, by their faith, they, they put together an assembly of facts and then they jumped into something that they considered a, a right conclusion. Now, let's say they're wrong. But that's what we do too. I mean, you got faith. You got faith either direction. Right now, an anti-supernatural stance is very popular. A lot of people in the West are into it. But I, I don't know that that means that it's right. Love this quote from Chesterton. Tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It's a democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. Well, yeah. There are some people walking about who don't consider the possibility of anything supernatural. But most people around the world, and almost all the dead ones, were on a different camp. They believe differently. Well, what do we do with that? I, I think you have to give yourself the time to ask these questions, but then push yourself to try to really answer these questions. Who is this Jesus, and what do you do with him? If you see that you do have need of this real Jesus, if you see that there is something that is in your life that he can fix, even if it's just the thing you feel like the blindness and not your real problem like your sin, start where you feel the need. Understand the way that, that we're going to try and help you understand how it's connected and that how his, his grace towards you of saving you is exactly what you need, that that is going to be the solution to your fear. To your blindness. If you will, look at, look at the love. I just want to, want to bookend this with his love. It says in verse 35, Jesus went through all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. What are you going to find when you meet Jesus? You're going to find in his eyes compassion. Because you're harassed and you're helpless. You're like a sheep without a shepherd. Let him be your shepherd. Trust in him and believe. Isaiah 53, 6, a very famous verse. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And yet the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. 
Have you received this Jesus? Have you put yourself, whatever you understand, into him? Have you trusted in him? I told you there's a lot of wrong ways of knowing him. Is it the him that we're describing? But if you really see him, have you put your faith and your trust in this son of David? If you have, then you've started to experience his mercy. If you haven't, please give us the grace, the, the great opportunity to maybe speak into that situation a little bit. Share our experience. Help, help point you to some resources that maybe will help you get over some objections to see this real Jesus and live. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would save. And by that we mean that you would help people see how good you really are. Help lost sheep that are wayward and without a shepherd come to the one who will give them life, who will lead them beside still waters. Father, who will restore their souls. Please lead us to the one who, who can give us everything that we need that will restore us to the bliss that we were, we were promised in Adam. And it's not happening really until we're with you forever, but, but begun now, already, even if it's not yet. I pray that you would make our words clear, that you would make this appeal appealing, Father, and that you would draw your people to yourself for your glory. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.